morning, good evening, wherever you are. Uh, this is the World Football Index podcast. My name is Laura Bradburn and welcome to the show. Um, this week I have with me uh, my usual sidekick, partner in crime, Stevie Grieve. How are you doing, Stevie? I'm all right, how are you? I'm not too bad. Doesn't seem like a week since the last time we did this, but there you go. <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> and we've got a guest on the show this week. We're Really pleased to have on the show with us um, Mr. San Shetty, who is a BBC reporter and author. He's um, authored a couple of books in the past. The now I, try, I tried to pronounce this a couple of times, San, you might have to correct me, but it's a, it's a messy uh, graphic biography book, and he's also um, authored some books on boxing as well. Um, but he's here to talk to us um, about his latest offering, which is Total Football, which um, focuses on the evolution of tactics in the modern football game and throughout history. Welcome to the source. San, how are you doing? All right, thank you, and thank you for having me. And just, it, it's messy graphica. Right. Okay. I could. I. I couldn't quite translate that from the page to my mind to my mouth. It was kind. I was struggling, but. Uh, but it yeah, wasn't my title. To be fair, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can blame whoever whoever came up with that one. Then. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, if you wouldn't mind, Forrest Sands, just providing the listeners with a bit of outline of, um, what the book's about, um, how the idea came about, and and what kind of things it focuses on. Okay, well, it's easier for me to say how it came about. So about two years ago, I was discussing with the the editor of my previous books how we can go forward in terms of football books. And one of the first ideas I had was to look at an all-time 11 players, starting from goalkeeper to to the front, and picking out why why and how they would be in the team. And she decided that a better way to do it was to look at maybe the 11 best or most important football matches of the last 70 or 80 years, which was a much better idea. So that's how we went forward from there. And I suggested that we started back in 1953 uh, and the great Hungary side that beat England 6-3 through to nowadays. And I think the last um, the last match in the book, the last chronological match, is when Chelsea beat Manchester City 3-1, not last season, but the season before that. And in within the, the spectrum of that 70-odd years of football matches, we've picked out other matches uh, and tried to illustrate how football tactics have progressed since 1953, uh, dealing with things like the 4-4-2s, the 4-3-3s. Um, say, for instance, total football as it was espoused by Ajax and the great Dutch sides of the 70s, through to Pep's 2008, 2009, 2010 side, the Barcelona side, which was dominated by Messi. Uh, and, and that's basically where we come from. But I think probably what's more different about this book as compared to, to other books, and I'm not in any way going to say that it's better than other books that have just dealt with tactics <laughs> in recent times, um, is that it's perhaps more graphical in, it, in its outline. So you can see player movement. Um, this is not great radio, I understand. But that you can see player <laughs> movement illustrated on, on the pages in a way that probably you don't see very much. And I think that's where it takes it forward. And with every chapter, with every game that I've looked at, uh, say, for instance, we've redoubled Catanaccio back in the 1960s. We've tried to illustrate the context of where that game took place in, in terms of what types of football were more prevalent back then, how the match went, who was the most important player and how the tactic worked to nullify the opposition, but also to enhance the, the team that won the game. 
it sounds like a, a kind of fa- very far-reaching um, book with, that covers a lot of areas. Just look, going back to how you described looking at the most important matches throughout the last 70 years or so, what was the process behind um, picking those specific matches? Was that something that, that you both just came to the table with, with a bunch of matches and whittled it down? Or, or was it a case of going sort of season by season and trying to pick out the best that you could find? So, you know, it's a funny thing, or um, I probably I've got a reputation for occasionally either talking myself up or talking myself down, depending on who I'm speaking to. <laughs> uh, what I found was I, at the BBC, I worked with loads of really talented journalists uh, and loads of very knowledgeable journalists. And uh, say, for instance, a couple of the guys I work with uh, occasionally, uh, Steve Wyeth and Hugh Ferris, who do their own pod- podcast called Set Piece Menu, and, and we discussed quite often what games we thought should go in this all-time 11. And they had their ideas, and obviously I had my ideas. But it, it seemed to work in a way that everything fared off the next one. So, for instance, back in 1953, we were talking about Hungary versus England. And, and that kind of all-out attack football that was so prevalent for seven or eight years was then stopped to a certain degree by Catanazio. And, and that's how I went. So I went from all-out attack to Catanazio. And then I described the next chapter, the third chapter, uh, the Brazilian side of the 1970s, coming back into the light because, of course, that was a great team and you couldn't ignore that team and what it offered football and how that then expired generations to, to come. So uh, off the back of that Brazilian side, there was the great Dutch side. Then there was a great Liverpool side of the, the 1970s. What I found was that actually between the end of the 70s and through to the early 90s was a bit of a fallow time for football in terms of how it tactically expressed itself. But that's what I found. I found that everything seemed to feed into other things. And so when I came back to it, say in the 90, mid-1990s, we found that great Milan side. Uh, which won uh, quite a few Scudettos and the European Cup. Uh, and then obviously in the, in the last 10 to 15 years, it was more a case of what I was going to leave out. So I, I had to make sure there was a, a chapter about Sir Alex Ferguson, Manchester United. Uh, there had to be Pep Guardiola. And the last four or five years, it was quite hard to work out what was going to go in. Um, so we looked at the, the Bayern side, the, the German side that dominated in the, the last, not the last World Cup, the World Cup before. And then Conte coming back with his, uh, the back three. And it's not to say that Antonio Conte pioneered the back three, but I think he brought it back to where we look at it and think, oh, do you want the back three? That, that could work. Yeah, that um, uh, Conte, I'm sure, would be first to admit that it's, uh, he's uh, not the first to pioneer the back three, but certainly used it effectively both uh, at Juventus and at Chelsea, and I think in the, in the national team when he worked uh, with Italy. Um, Stevie, I just want to bring you in here. You obviously um, work with your own coaching academy. You're a qualified coach. Sanjay's book has graphical representations of the tactics and how they affect games, how players move around. As a coach, how how much does the image of tactical outlay help you or, or is it something that you can sort of focus on in your own mind? I think there's an obvious phrase which is a picture paints a thousand words. And I think if you can show kids or players of any age a couple of pictures, it's much, much easier for them to pick it up. And we live in a, an era now where kids have got iPads and stuff, so everything's visual and they can take information and interpret so much faster than previous generations. So I think if you have a book with lots of pictures in it, it's not a bad thing. People try to 
I know with the, the books that I wrote in the past, people say, oh, it's a picture book. A picture book for people who like football. Less reading, more pictures, I think, is a good way to do it. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I think especially when you're talking about it, uh, I, I presume from, from Sandy's book and from, from other books that I've read around similar topics, there's so many technical terms and, and sort of jargon associated with football that imagery is, is only going to sort of help get the message across much better. Um, Sand, was there any sort of um, previous works that you looked at to help influence the graphical representation of the tactics or, or was it something that you, how, how did that get designed? Do you know what, it, it, it's a funny thing. So I only met the designer seven or eight months ago. And most of the time, because this, this book was done to a really tight deadline, we literally got to go ahead in October last year. And I only started working on November, in November last year, and it was finished by the middle of December. But I was sending my ideas, my outlines of things from the get-go. And what what I found was that, obviously, I used my own eyes, because I've been able to, you know, we, we live in an age where I, I was lucky enough to watch every single game on TV or uh, there was a couple that I imagine managed to be at, and that you can watch them over and over again, and and look at the patterns of play, and and work out what was the most important thing. So I remember thinking how lucky I was to, with that that great Ajax side, say for instance of the nineteen seventies, that high line that they played that that we talk about quite often now. I suppose probably more with say for instance Manchester City and and to a certain degree Liverpool that they played that high defensive line as a twofold way to to. To compress the compress the pitch, and then to nullify the the opposition when they tried their sporadic attack. So I think a lot of the information that I've, that that we've put across was available to me when I did my research um, from expert analysis from various websites, all of which I've detailed. Um, but also the idea that as soon as I, I watch these games, so for instance, this idea of a false nine that I think has been given a lot of credence by Pep Guardiola's uh, Barcelona side of Messi playing in that role. I looked at it and thought, well, actually, this false number nine is, is not a new concept. And I think Guardiola has, has basically said that as well. It, it's an old concept. And a lot of it goes back to that Hungary side of, of the 1950s. And all I needed to do was to read it in some form or, other or, or pick it up. So... That was one thing. I think uh, the books that I've looked at, but I've tried to not look at them too much because you know how your subconscious can work and sometimes you think you're just plagiarising things. So I obviously looked at the mixer, which was really popular in the last two years. Uh, I looked at inverting the pyramid, which was also very popular. But there were also individual works um, dealing with certain teams. So, for instance, Graham Hunter's really good book about Barcelona. I looked at that as well. And... I remember thinking when I read that about two or three years ago, the thing that st- struck me was how, for instance, Guardiola decided to play Messi as a false number nine on the eve of the Real Madrid-Barcelona match in 2009. When I think he got to say to me, he thought, well, I've got this really, really, really special player on my hands, but I need a system that really suits him. And that's the other thing that, that I experienced when I was writing this book was, and I don't have the answer to this, is at what stage do coaches come across with a philosophy of their own and at what point do coaches adapt to the fact that they've got these special players in their armoury? Yeah, I think that's a, a great place to bring Stevie in, actually. Just picking up on what Sanj said there, Stevie, as a coach yourself, I mean, 
especially teaching kids, I, I would imagine you can correct me if I'm wrong here that there's a there's an element of teaching them the basics first and making sure they've got a, a good underlying knowledge of of football tactics and football um base skills. But uh, having managed teams and things as well in the past, what what aspects of tactics um take priority for the team, or is there is there always a case to be said for focusing on a special player and and, and playing that player to their strengths? I think most of the time in youth development, you're developing all of the players. So you take the, the individual first and how can you improve their actions? Within their individual actions, you have team collective actions. So if we were to follow maybe the Verheyen model of communication being of the highest order, that's to do with the style of play and the non-verbal and verbal communication between the players, understanding each other's actions. If you have a player such as Messi in your team, to get the most out of him, the team collection, the team function has to be completely understood by the whole collective, which there becomes an, in, an issue at international level. So when you're using football tactics to enhance players, you need to have them understand what to do from a technical perspective of what action do they need to do to be effective in the match. But tactically, how can you use it to benefit the team? So players like, say, for example, Andros Townsend, somebody who shoots from a specific area of the field constantly. He's good at that type of shot, but he's ineffective at that type of shot because he doesn't score. If he was able to get himself in a better position and use the same level of technical ability, he might become a more effective player. So when you're when you're taking things like a false nine or an inverted winger or a, a Busquets-style player, that's because that role and that specific profile makes the team better. You can give somebody a different type of role to enhance what they do to make the team better. For example, um, the team I coached last year, we changed from a 4-3-3 to a 4-2-2-2 because we wanted to free up one of the players in midfield to get her on the ball so that she could make the decisions in the final third and create us more scoring chances. In a 4-3-3, she was constantly marked. In a 4-4-2 diamond or a 4-4-2 box, she was generally the free one. Or if she wasn't free, she could lay off to somebody who was. So... You look for ways to try and enhance the players that you have um, and make them more effective for their team. Playing Messi as a false nine was a, a response to how Madrid mark or how their defensive organisation works. And then how does that make Messi a better player? And then from that point on, they used them there all the time because nobody knew how to figure out what to do. So as good as he was, the system helped him become the player that he is. So as a coach, you have to find the balance between making them a better individual player through their technical quality, but making them a more effective player through the communication and the decision-making that they have within the team context. Absolutely. And and just talking about Messi as a false nine and, and, and that whole idea of the false nine um, sort of coming into fashion, if you like, for, for a long time it was kind of the in vogue uh, phrase and it open the question to either of you to answer this but I get the feeling sometimes when I'm, I'm observing certain managers uh, at certain clubs it, you know adopting that sort of in vogue tactical decision making and, and tactical choice because they see the best players in the world uh, managing it effectively where the players at their disposals might not have the ability to do that. Do either of you, in your experiences, researching tactics and, and coaching and things like that, do you ever find yourselves seeing a, a, a tactical 
idea uh, sort of become in vogue in a way, but actually really not be a very effective one for the majority of the teams that are trying to use it? Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry, I mean, Steve, I'm, Steve, I'm, I'm sorry, I'll go because I, I talk a lot, so I thought I'd get this out of the way and then you can talk. Um, the, the thing that, the, the one that strikes me is the three at the back. And uh, it's it's amazing how often the three at the back comes back in as the taxi of the moment. But also, I think for a lot of teams, and I, I'm really thinking about the Premier League mostly, I mean, I do cover all kinds of European football as well, but I'm mostly thinking about the Premier League. And I think quite often the, the three at the back, or the five at the back, as it sometimes becomes, is used as a defensive measure to, to stem the bleeding if, if a side is uh, having a, a series of bad results, uh, or if that team is going to, say, one of the big six and decides they've got no chance of winning a football match, and therefore there is the easiest option, the last option they've got, is to blunt the opposition. But that's my reading of the, the tactical shift and, and the way things work. I think in other countries around the world, um, I, I know this for a fact, say, uh, in Germany, the, the tactical shifts are mostly based on producing the best possible quality football. And, of course, Italy's still got that uh, reputation of being fairly defensive, but I think that's probably lost over the years. But I think certainly in the Premier League, that the, the tactical shifts almost always take place when there's a struggle or when... Uh, as I, I think I've said in that sort of book, that the the art of warfare is that you know if you if you're fighting opposition that you know is is stronger than you, then the thing you have to do is evade, and I think that's quite prevalent in in English football, certainly in the top level. Yeah, I think like when when we look at stuff like a back three just becoming fashionable, it's, it might be because at some point teams are playing four three three, and teams are then going right. Well, we'll play two strikers against your centre backs, and then we'll play two v two in transition. So then the team makes a conscious decision to go, okay, well, in our defensive phase, we'll play with three at the back. When we have the ball, we'll, we'll leave three at the back to defend in transition. So it depends on if you're a team who plays high up the park in possession a lot or if you're a team who plays deeper and plays without possession. So teams that play with three at the back can, can do it because they want to secure the middle defensively and, and defend with a back five. But you've got other coaches like Guardiola who will, will use a back three against a team who play with two centre-forwards because they want a free man and they have somebody dropping between the centre-backs who can then almost go man-to-man when the ball is lost. It allows you to press higher, it allows you to cover more space on the outside. So if we take a field being 65 metres wide, for example, two centre-backs covering the width of the field is really difficult. Three centre-backs doing it makes it easier for for more flexibility in the position of the wide centre-backs. If you have a back four, quite often one full-back will tuck in as one advances and makes it a three anyway. So whether you play a back three or a back four, sometimes it's just down to individual movements of transition phases or of organisation. Like if I, if I take myself, for example, I like playing with a back three to bring the ball out from the back. Because the, if you split the field into five channels from left to right, you have the left and right centre-backs um, in zones two and four, and the middle centre-back in zone three, you can recycle the ball really quickly. It gives you enough structure and stability to allow you to dribble forward if you want, or to find forward passes. If a team only presses with one at the back, you can build up with two anyway. So A lot of it just depends on oppositional changes based on the league that you play in and the types of games that you come up against. And then you'll see this season, I think Wolves will be a team who have 
lots of tactical flexibility depending on which teams that they come up against with and without the ball. So one of those things where people say, a oh, false nine, oh, let, let's try that. And then somebody will write a book about the false nine, let's try that. Do you have a player that can do that? No. So you need to develop players that do it. What's, what I find interesting is that if we take Guardiola's Bayern, two inverted fullbacks, two really extremely high wingers, kind of a, a central attacking midfielder who becomes a striker. So if people then look at his system and go, right, what's the reasons for these? To defend the counter-attack, to provide you with third-man runs, to provide you with runs to dismark or to arrive late and things like that. Does that then affect youth football and youth coaching and coach education? And then do we see these things again in the next cycle in maybe 10 years or 15 years because these players are allowed to do that? So I'll be interested to see in a few years um, you have more players who are more naturally inclined to play as an inverted fullback than, say, before Guardiola. So there's things that coaches do at the top level which then have a big impact in coaching 10, 15 years down the line. Yeah, and I think, I think like you say, um, it's all, always about having the right players for the right system. And I think Guardiola is a good example of that. Um, the whole inverted fullback thing. One of the first things I I think he seems to do at any club that he goes to, um, Man City was another example of this. Uh, he had two aging fullbacks in in Gail Clichy and um, Bakary Sanya, and and they were pretty much out of the door, or or certainly on their way out the door, pretty much as soon as he came in because he seems to really like, you know, Danny Alves in his prime at Barcelona, Philip Lamb other fullbacks like that who are very, very mobile, able to get up and down the channels, but also moving in and out of midfield and, and very comfortable on the ball, not just delivering at the end of a, a, a dribble and run, but uh, being able to pass the ball in field and take possession of the ball in field. So without players, without fullbacks like that who are comfortable on the ball in that way, that kind of system wouldn't work. But he, again, the same as the false nine, the inverted fullback thing seems to become a bit of an in-vogue thing that other people have tried. And and, and you see it, it it doesn't really work a lot of the time. They get players to do the role who aren't quite as comfortable on the ball, who, who don't know how to pass quite as surely. And all you're left with then is a team that loses possession of the ball with massive holes in the wide areas in the last uh, final third that are unable to manage it. So... But talking about those in vogue tactical choices that get made, Guardiola's sort of taken on the false nine and, and, and the inverted fullbacks, and there's been plenty of other ones. Sanj, just to ask you, in the course of your research, was there anything that um, any of the the teams from throughout history, maybe the older teams like the the Hungarian team of the fifties, um, or or Johan Cruyff's team of the nineteen seventies, was there anything they were doing back then? that they don't get as much credit for that is being seen as a kind of more pioneering thing in the modern game? Is there anything that you kind of recognise from what they did that is quite prevalent in the modern game today? The first thing that um, that struck me was that, that Hungary side of the 50s. And uh, there was a player called, I don't even know how to say his name properly, I think it's Hidakuti. And he scored, I think he scored three. He certainly scored a few against England. But he was playing in that false nine position. So because Puskas is regarded as one of the great players of, of our time, uh, we always focus on him. And, of course, that, that goal that I think quite a lot of people have seen that he scored in, in the 6-3. But it was him who played that false nine position. So, and, and back then, of course, formations 
virtually every team played with the same formation. It's, it's how you deployed the formation that was different. So it was the, 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 that WM formation, which Hungary didn't use, but it was three at the back and then five and two. And, yeah, he was very, very unique. And, and, and so when I when I read about that, I was thinking, and I'm sure Guardiola, like I said, Guardiola talked about this, you know, he, he doesn't see himself as this great innovator that, in fact, a lot of the ideas that he's got have come from before him. Again, it's with the Catanazio, the that kind of blanket defence output. I mean, a lot of teams are still using it. They're just we're, now we call it low block, don't we? And that, and that's what struck me when I, when I was reading about that. But again, even with Catanazio, literally they were taking off an idea that had come from the 1930s from a Swiss side. Mm. And then there was again when I was looking at the Liverpool side of the 1970s, certainly the Liverpool side that beat. Uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach 3-1 to win their first European Cup in 1977. Kevin Keegan played in the false nine role that that night. Um, and basically, and, and you could look at Kevin Keegan, and back then that's probably what we would have said. I mean, I was only six or seven then. You would have said, oh, he runs around a lot. But actually, a lot of his running was done by design. So there were there were guys who played in, in winger-type positions, the likes of Steve Highway, even Terry McDermott would come forward and press from the right-hand side. But they could only do that because Kevin Keegan was running to the left or running to the right and creating space. So that was what struck me, was that all the way through, I'm seeing examples of something else that someone else had done and literally had been reinvented. And so it led me to this, this idea. At the end of the book, I turned around and looked at it and I said to some people at work, so do you realise I'm not included any formations here or any teams uh, that feature Jose Mourinho or Rafa Benitez. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, there's nothing to do with a dislike or anything. But I, I looked at it and I thought, well, I'm not sure they've really innovated at any point. And then I could say to myself, well, a lot of the guys I've talked about haven't really innovated. They've literally borrowed, copied or, or whatever ideas from someone else. But I think both Jose and, and, and Rafa Benitez... Their, their ideas of how to play football with, and Steve will know more about this than me, that the 4 2 3 1, I think they both espouse in, in their great sides. Well, that's not a new tactic. In fact, it's probably two or three generations down from the first time it was used. And a lot of the teams, they say, for instance, Ajax would use similar formations, but the way they, when they would deploy their attacking players made you think that. Yeah, so you've got two two sides using the same formation, but one applies them in a completely different way to the other. So that that was the that was the my, the general conclusion to what what I found when I was writing the book because a, a lot of things I knew and a lot of things I found out. I think it's interesting you mentioned like Mourinho has not been an, an innovator. Yeah, I think when you look at his his history, people are I think blinded by Real Madrid playing on the counter attack against one of the best Barcelona teams in history. When you look at his Porto team, they maybe didn't come up with new ideas, but he looked at, well, in, Port- in Portugal they play 4-3-3 a lot, or 4-4-2 is a, a flat line in midfield. He had one player in front of the midfield line to make sure that Deco was free. So he's, he's been a guy who, who changes to try and find a way to make his best player more effective. So if we look at Real Madrid on the counter-attack, he made Cristiano Ronaldo free of any defensive responsibility and was always the first reference in transition. Same with Inter Milan. If you look at the way they, they set up defensively in some games, you would have a player not not kind of even high or wide on the right-hand side, but completely tucked into the middle and they leave the far side free. 
he's come through as a guy who, with no background in football, and has had to fight his all the way up to come where he's at. And lots of things he's picked up as an assistant coach or as an analyst or as a scout and helping other managers as he's gone. He's always found a way to get his best players to be as effective as possible to make that team better. I think a lot of coaches fail to make their best player able to stand out. Look at Porto, Deco stood out. When they moved to Chelsea, he found a way to make Aaron Robin and Frank Lampard stand out. Um, when he moved to Real Madrid, Ronaldo, he was already an amazing player by that point and he had been a World Player of the Year, but I don't think I don't think anybody would have predicted the rise of him. And Mourinho gave him three years of being a ruthless goal-scoring machine. And then even then, when he's gone to Chelsea in the second year, I think he's made Eden Hazard go from being a player who was very good to being among the best in the world. So he hasn't always found um, really adventurous, innovative attacking systems. He's found a way to try and really enhance an individual to make the team better and find a way to make them better, which is actually a really difficult way to coach because now you're looking for a way where you go, right, how do we make this guy uh, a superstar? And I think the, one of the biggest issues he's had over the last, I would say, six or seven years is the old Mourinho was charismatic, a wee bit charming, got the press on his side, somebody that probably everybody wanted to play for. And now he's gone into a, a more of a siege mentality role. So him as a person has evolved and that's, I think, has affected his, his tactical structure because there was a lot more freedom at the start of his coaching career than what there is now for players. And I think that's something which... It would be an interesting thing to look at managers' careers and how they've evolved with their own tactical implementation of different ideas with the players that they have at their disposal and how they've changed as the, everything's gone on. Yeah, uh, what, just just to interrupt, sorry, Laura. Um, what I found with, with, with Jose, looking back to even the early part of this century, was that he was famed for compiling PowerPoint presentations about all the players that he was about to work with and tell them where they were strong, where they were weak, and how he could make them even better. And I thought, do you know what? The, the, the problem I've got with the book I'm writing is there's no way I can find a chapter to, to deal with the strengths of man management. And as you just said, he's, he always had that thing on his side that he would convince you that he could make you a better player. It's like any environment. you know. It's not just football. In any environment and work, you'll always respond, I think, to the, the manager who tells you, you're doing a good job, but I can make you great. Yeah, I, th- I think there's some great points raised there. And what I was going to say was it's uh, Sanjay's uh, initial comments about Mourinho are, are kind of music to my ears because my, my brother and I often have a, a back and forth about the difference between a successful manager and an innovator, where I think Guardiola is an innovator and, and, and has brought things to the game that other managers haven't done. Mourinho is undoubtedly a successful manager but kind of taking the best pieces of everybody else's work and putting it together to make um amazing teams to pick up on what Stevie said I think I think that that making a star player um of of one player and having the team work around him is is absolutely one of Mourinho's strengths one of the other ones that I thought of when you were when you were going through um his his club history was when he had that um amazing treble season at uh, Inter Milan he basically made Wesley Schneider the, the the best player in the world at that point so that absolutely co- sort of corresponds with what you're saying but apart from Guardiola I'm struggling to really think of you know, a kind of an Arrigo Saki or a or a Rinas Mikos or 
somebody like that, somebody somebody else apart from Guardiola in the modern age who's really taken the game on to the next level. Stevie, I'll go to you first with that. Is, is there anybody who's kind of evolving the game of football, if you like, in the modern game apart from a, a kind of Guardiola? Is there anybody else that you see that's bringing things to the table that nobody else has? I think that I think the problem with the perception of that and a little bit of the question is we only really see the guys who are at the top who are really successful, the ones winning the trophies. There might be another two or three Pep Guardiola doing really similar things, being really innovative and, and achieving far, far greater results than what anybody would have expected. You know, you, you could have, if we take Villarreal as a club who have always managed to overachieve, their club structure means that they hire coaches of a specific level, a specific idea, and then they will then work within that. So I think that the, there's there's two sections to it. One is that clubs have a certain identity and way of playing that everybody expects, but the coaches who are revered the most for coming up with these innovative ideas are always the ones in the biggest clubs with the most trophies. So you could have somebody like a Marco Rose at Red Bull Salzburg who have got a really interesting style of play. Rene Maric, who's, who's well known on Twitter as, as the assistant coach there, they do a lot of interesting things to try and find ways to attack or score or to try and transition. Everybody, I think, now knows of Julian Nagelsmann. Does he fly under the radar a little bit because he's not in a club who are going to immediately win trophies? I know he's moving to Red Bull Leipzig, so it's different. Roger Schmidt was a guy coming up with really different tactical ideas three or four years ago with Bayer Leverkusen before he eventually moved to China. So Jurgen Klopp, at, I think at the start of the 2010s, with Borussia Dortmund, I think is a pioneer because everybody was trying to play either in the defensive cycle or the possession attacking cycle. Like Guardiola wanted purely in the attacking cycle a little bit of pressing, no defending. Or you had the Mourinho, a lot of defending and try to play in the break. And Klopp at that period was a complete innovator in the sense that he didn't want to play with or without the ball. He wanted to play in the phases of transition. How do we lose it? Can we counter-press? Can we score from regaining it? Or when we win the ball back in a block, can we counter-attack really fast and make the game messy and chaotic? So I think Jurgen Klopp and Roger Schmidt are two guys who quite commonly fly under the radar of being really innovative because it's not defensive or attacking. It's transitioning, which is a lot harder to, to try and read, understand and, and even break down and analyse. So for me, Jurgen Klopp's one of the guys who I admire the most. Thomas Tuchel is in there also. Thomas Tuchel has been phenomenal for years. And I just think we, we're always looking at the guys at the top who win the trophies. But there's a bunch of mid-level teams with incredible coaches who don't get the same attention because the publicity isn't there for that specific club. He's um, as well. Thomas Tuchel's an incredibly intelligent guy as well. I mean, the guy's fluent in so many languages. That, that always gives you the, the hint as to, to what they do when they're not doing trouble. The, the other guy that I think of, and this will, everyone will think, if any, anyone who knows me will say this is because of my bias. I, I do think Brendan Rodgers um, is a guy who has got great ideas about football. And if people can still remember back to his time at Liverpool, that he took a Liverpool side with basically one really great player, one and two or three quite good players to within what, two or three points of the league title by playing a brand of football that wasn't too dissimilar from the, the likes of football that the Jurgen Klopp uh, likes to play, that really fast transition football. 
Um, and I think it, it's been important for him to spend two years at Celtic. He'll do obviously a third year and get his confidence back as a football manager and start to believe in the ideas that he uh, he espoused at Liverpool and then he'll take it back. And not to, to denigrate Scottish footballers, I speak to obviously Scottish people here, but um, to, to, to get him back to the highest level of football coaching with the team either in England or abroad uh, so that people can see what he does is, is fairly impressive. The whole um, Brendan Rodgers thing kind of baffles me, to be honest. I'm, full disclosure for everybody listening, I am a Celtic fan and I have to say that Rodgers coming into our club, we were in a situation before he arrived, we had Ronnie Dela, this kind of uh, not very well known but supposedly tactically innovative Norwegian manager who really, given the funds at his disposal, although they were kind of tightened while he was there and, and there was no Rangers there, you know, we we should have been winning that league at a canter, and it really wasn't happening. There wasn't there wasn't the style of play that that Celtic fans uh, know and expect. Um, and I think, like you say, Rogers did so much at Liverpool and has has carried that on at Celtic. He's made some pretty average players really great. He's he's identified the weaknesses really well. And a, apart from this summer, where he doesn't appear to have got quite the same amount of financial backing from the board as he's had in previous years. He's been able to um, identify very, very weak areas and speaking as somebody who's been able to watch it firsthand, he's really brought a, a level of excitement back into the game for Celtic fans who have the kind of luxurious problem of being slightly bored with the way their team were winning the league every season and he's brought that that kind of an enjoyment back into to watching that. I wanted to actually ask you that, Sanj, um, being a Liverpool supporter, and, and I have seen in my research that you're quite vocal in your sort of praise and admiration of Brendan Rodgers. I personally felt that that his sort of dip in reputation was more to do with his kind of persona off the pitch, these kind of David Brent style comments and, and, and sound bites that he would make. And, and people, I think, came down on him for that and kind of forgot that he took the team to within, you know, touching distance of a league title, playing very, very exciting brand of football. Do you think he's been kind of unfairly treated? Um, do you think he'll get another chance at a sort of really massive club, or do you think that kind of boat sailed, if you like? Do you know what's funny? I mean, I, I could talk about this for ages. I remember speaking to an Arsenal fan, at the end of last season when it was apparent that Wenger was leaving and they were looking for a new guy. And I suggested Brendan Rodgers and this guy just looked at me and the same sort of age as me and he said, are you joking? Is that bloke's not not nearly good enough for our club? And I just said to him, you, you won't believe how, how good a football manager is, how, how bright he is as a coach. And I think a lot of what happened to Brendan Rodgers, not all of it, but a lot of it, is to do with the era that we live in and, and the way we can just rip it out of people for, for the little, for the smallest thing, you know, the, that documentary, uh, being Liverpool, when was it? 2013, 2012, when it came out and, and you watch it and you just thought, Oh, this is going to come back to haunt you. Yeah. Uh, unless you win something, you know, if you win something, then people will forget it and just think, Oh, well, that was a funny part of his journey. And I think that, and also the white teeth and losing the weight and then leaving his wife <laughs> and going a younger, blonder um, model. I mean, all these things that could, can add up, but none of them should get in the way of the fact that he's a really, really bright football coach with really good ideas. And, and the one thing that always strikes me about his teams, uh, Stevie will, uh, I'm 
sorry, that's my children lo- losing it downstairs. Um, um, one thing that always strikes me is that the way he's able to get his players to make the pitch seem so much bigger. And I always thought that when I used to watch Sir Alex Ferguson sides, that his teams would make Old Trafford seem it was huge and opposition teams wanted to play there. And I, I think at Anfield, certainly that season when Liverpool went so close to winning that league, the, the one thing he did was the simple thing of making Steven Gerrard step back into a defensive midfield uh, position, split the centre-backs and make that pitch seem huge. Because for years, smaller teams had come to Anfield with no more ambition than to, to just take a point, just to frustrate. And, and he brought an end to that by, by being an innovative coach. Um, and I do think that one day he will get the chance in the Premier League to manage an, another team. Who that is, I'm not entirely certain. It looks like Arsenal have put their, their, their onions in the, the Unai Emery bag. Uh, you get the feeling with Chelsea, they'll do two years with um, Maurizio Sarri. He'll never be at Manchester United because of where he's come from. Um, so that, that leaves really what Manchester City and Spurs. I think Spurs, if Pochettino ends up being lured to Real Madrid, I don't think they'll go too far wrong with, with going for Brendan Rodgers. The one thing that struck me with Brendan Rodgers was he didn't work well with others at the club. So there was constantly this um, the issue with him and the directors of football who were buying the players. And I think that's the one thing he's going to have to get used to. If he wants to go to one of those truly elite clubs, that there are hierarchies at these places where they make those decisions about the players they're going to buy. And then he has to work with them. So it's, it's interesting to see, essentially, when Liverpool bought Roberto Firmino, who is a, just a, an absolutely outstanding footballer, Rogers barely touched him. Klopp's come in and made him one of the world's best. Hmm. I think your point about him uh, struggling with tensions with the, the sort of money men at the top of the clubs is certainly something that he's seeing at, uh, at Celtic at the moment. He's 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 already been quoted uh, very recently. Sort of one of the journalists up here in Scotland asked him at one point uh, during one of the press conferences, and I state here I might be slightly misquoting, but he was asked. You know, was he frustrated with the lack of business that Celtic had managed to do and the lack of spending this summer and the inability to strengthen the squad? And instead of saying, no, he wasn't frustrated, he, he wasn't upset with the way things are managed, he kind of said, I, I keep thoughts like that to myself, that this is something private that I would never share with the public. So instead of flat out denying it, he kind of made everybody think, well... A kind of non-committal answer is basically a yes, but uh, but we'll see how that goes. Um, Stevie, just to expand on this whole thing, we're we're talking, we're focusing very much on tactical innovation. We're focusing very much on how on the pitch things can be affected by managers. Looking at a situation like Brendan Rodgers and, and and others like him, and Sands brought up that we're living in a very modern world where you can kind of create gifts out of managers' reactions. Uh, Roy Hodgson's a famous one. Do you think do you think we're living in a modern world where things like that from the outside can really affect players and their respect for managers? Are they aware of what what the public opinion of as a manager and do you think that affects sort of how they respond to him on the pitch? Or or is that something that people read into a little bit too much? I think that there's there's always going to be like a preconception bias for or people in general, whether it's football players or whether it's if you work in a shop and you get a new manager and you've heard stuff about them, I think that it doesn't really make too much of a difference. You're going to have your own biases and preconceptions anyway. So 
if a if a manager, for example, comes into a new club and everybody's like, oh no, we've heard he's a nightmare to work with and whatever, the players might have that pre- preconception. The job of the manager initially is to try and make them believe in him, make them trust him. So I think if if we take Brendan Rodgers and, and the conversation Sanchez had with an Arsenal sporting friend, I was in the same boat. I would have, if Brendan Rodgers had been available and Arsenal wanted to take him, I wouldn't have been against it. I think he's done a great job at Celtic. Maybe the, the preconception of him when he was going in, I don't know what it would have been, but the preconception is the guy's come from Liverpool, so he's going to be really good. Had Ronnie Dyler come from Liverpool to Celtic, would he have had the same preconception? Probably, because he's just come from Liverpool. So I think when you look at what Brendan Rodgers has done, he made a, a good Liverpool team close enough to winning the league with a couple of individual mistakes late on and chucking away a 3 0 lead against Crystal Palace. The problem Brendan Rodgers has is that none of his teams can defend. You saw with Liverpool, not great defensively. Um, when he was at Swansea, not great defensively. We see Celtic when they play in Europe, exposed defensively. Mm-hmm. For him to go to a club like Chelsea, for example, in two or three years' time, that's something which is going to have to be fixed because at the top level, even if your team looks fantastic in position, plays a really expansive, beautiful brand of football, if they can't defend against teams of similar quality, they're going to get beat anyway. We saw that with Arsene Wenger over the past 15 years. So mm-hmm. it's one of those things where you have three parts to the game, the attacking cycle, the defensive cycle, and the transition cycle. If you can only master one of them, your team's not going to be that successful. If you can master two, you have a chance. If you are like Guardiola and your teams are able to control all three cycles, then you're probably going to be successful. So I think... There's, there's always a preconception about managers when they go into a job. Like when Rafa Benitez moved into Newcastle, there's an instant respect and credibility because it's Rafa Benitez and he's, he's won everything and he's just come from Real Madrid. So if you have somebody who have the same coaching abilities and the same ideas and the same mannerisms and the same words and they put everything across, previous history is obviously going to give you some level of preconception, credibility or non-credibility like Bielsa, when he goes into a club, everybody's really excited, even though he's never won anything. And his teams always, you know, die in the second half of the season. Everybody knows what they're going to get with Bielsa. You're going to get a bit of excitement. You're going to get this amazing brand of football, a level of mystique. I think that the problem now in modern society is that you don't get many coaches nowadays with a level of mystique. Or you get a Marco Silva who's good and comes from nowhere and then pundits slaughter them because they fail to do their own research and they're ignorant. So mm-hmm. there's in the modern society, you're always going to have these little things going on in the background and the manager and the players just, in most cases, kind of have to blot that out and work together and see where it goes from there. Yeah, I totally agree with your point about Marco Silva. That was something I found really frustrating when he first came into Hull City. It was kind of because people didn't know his name or, or well, certainly people who don't look out with the British Isles didn't know his name they kind of just dismissed him out of hand and he's proved them all wrong. So five minutes of Googling would have done that at the point he was appointed. But, you know, some people don't even have time to do that, I don't think. Um, we're running a little bit low on time, guys. But just before we go, um, Sanj, obviously, you are a Liverpool supporter. Just wanted to get your thoughts a little bit on sort of the reign under Jurgen Klopp so far, where you see it going this season and... and and your thoughts on what I perceive to be quite a strong transfer window for Liverpool. They seem to have been really considered about the way they've kind of targeted 
certain weaknesses within the side and really um, made some really considered purchases, I've thought. Um, are you quite happy with things? how things are progressing? What do you see happening this season at Anfield? I'm basically about as happy as a pig in muck, I think. Uh, I, yeah, I, I think you've, you've said it, uh, Stevie said it quite a lot. Um, any potential weaknesses in the side, I think, have been addressed. Uh, yeah, I mean, he said it before quite often that uh, to, to challenge for things on a regular basis, he, he thinks he just needs a, perhaps a little bit more luck in terms of with key injuries and, and, and so forth. So slightly concerned already that, that for this weekend, there's apparently only one definitely fit centre-back and that's in Virgil van Dijk, although you might say that he's, he's, he's two players and one. I think they've got everything. Uh, they've got uh, hopefully a strong goalkeeper. They've got uh, an amazing front three. So many midfield options. I mean, I think to myself sometimes, who's going to play in midfield? Because literally, I can't work out how many people that he actually has got. He's got about seven or eight midfielders that he could rely on. Some really good young fullbacks in Trent Alexander-Arnold and, and Andy Robertson. I don't know enough about that goalkeeper, but literally, I mean, I'm, I'm like most people, I've only seen him, been aware of him for the last year and a half. But I think in terms of pure football, I mean, I always think with Jurgen Klopp, when he buys people, even when they're defenders or goalkeepers, the first thing I think he thinks about is how can they add to my attack? I think that was one of the reasons he paid so much money for Virgil van Dijk was he'd seen that he actually can score four or five goals a season from you know, from corners and whatnot and set pieces. And it's the same with Alisson Becker. I think he's, he's seen the, the the level of football that he can play. I mean, I, I remember thinking last season when I saw Edison for, for City, that there were Premier League footballers who didn't have as good touch on the ball, uh, outfield players, uh, as Anderson. I think it's the same with Anderson Becker. I think he's a seriously good footballer, uh, irrespective of how he is with, with the gloves on. Um, I think Jürgen Klopp's brilliant. I think, like Stevie touched on, he, he plays a brand of football and he's an innovator and he doesn't relax. I think the one thing that always struck me with, um, with Jürgen Klopp was Fergie, Sir Alex Ferguson, always used to talk him up and always said that when he was, met him and talked to him at the coaches' meeting that they had, at the UEFA coaches' meeting, he was always impressed with the ideas of football that Jürgen Klopp had, that he always wanted to expand. His idea wasn't just to get three points, was to get three points uh, in the way of attacking as, for as much of the time as possible. Uh, and scoring as many goals as possible. I sometimes liken his brand of football to like Manchester City's, but on ecstasy. Uh, and that's to say, by the way, I'm, uh, 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 my mum's not listening to this, she's not live anymore, but I've never taken ecstasy. But I just imagine that's, that's you know, that people run around really fast and it's chaotic. And it, you know, sometimes I find it actually quite hard to watch Liverpool because it's, at my age, at 47, it's quite a lot of effort to actually watch it for 90 minutes <laughs> in the stadium or on television because it, it takes so much of your emotional uh, and mental energy just to watch them because they give so much. Uh, and I think, now I'm not going to say, I'm not going to curse them and say this could be their year to win the title, but I, <laughs> I, I'm disappointed as a fan uh, if they're not punching in the title race come February. Uh, if, if it dies in February, fair enough. But at least it, it would have gone to February, whereas in previous years it's it's evaporated round right about October or November. But yeah, it's it's just so much fun watching Liverpool as well. And I know a lot of Liverpool fans who weren't that disappointed after Kiev because they just think they're having so much fun watching this team play and entertain and score goals. And you know, it was easy with 
with how good Manchester City were last season to forget how good Liverpool were because they just approached uh, City, just made you think, oh, I've never seen football like this before. But actually down the road, or up the road, depending on your point of view of geography, uh, Liverpool were doing something fairly special. And, uh, and I thought they kind of deserved to win the European Cup because of the football they played and the fact that they probably beat the strongest team in Europe in Manchester City over two legs. Uh, and then they wiped away Roma as well. But you don't always get what you want or deserve in life. But I, I'm optimistic. I'm a happy Liverpool fan. I certainly have not come home at any point in my life in the last two, three years that he's been there and said, oh, we've got to change things because I, I think everything's as rosy as it can be. Stevie will probably have a better idea of where it can go uh, under Jurgen Klopp. And obviously he's, he's got his Arsenal allegiance as well. But I, I, I certainly think that they're, they're burning really brightly in the Premier League. Uh, yeah, Stevie, your thoughts on Klopp? I know you're a big fan. Do you see him taking Liverpool on this season and, and kind of getting that little bit closer to Pep's Man City for the title? Do you think he can he really mount a challenge there? I think he can mount a challenge this year, but I think it's, it's difficult for him to win it this year because Naby Keita, Fabinho, Alisson, as much as they're, they're fantastic players, I don't think Liverpool have got enough squad depth behind maybe Sadio Mane or Firmino. Um, Shaqiri's a good signing, I think. We already spoke about him. I think he's a great player. If Mohamed Stalas is fit, then it's fine. But you look at Man City's squad, they've got a far, far deeper squad to manage a, a long fixture list over the course of the year. Whereas if Liverpool have a couple of injuries, they're struggling. If you lose Mo Salah, they're struggling. So they need, a, I think, three more really top-level players. Potentially a, a, another centre-back to make Dejan Lovren a sub, but <laughs> he's been better. But I mean, if you have somebody even better than Dejan Lovren, then he's a decent backup center. So I think he's one of the best defenders in the world. That's what he tells everyone. <laughs> I, I, well, Klopp's a really good man manager. He'll tell people that Trent Alexander Arnold's going to be the next Cafu if, if he thought it was going to be make a big difference. I think Alexander Arnold's really good. As uh, obviously Andy Robertson's the best left back in the world, which nobody absolutely, can yep. Exactly. So, Apart from Kieran right. Tierney, obviously, but yeah. Well, unproven. <laughs> unproven. <laughs> no, I, think, I think next year Liverpool I think next year Liverpool can win the league. This year, if they can get within seven or eight points of Man City, that's a big achievement. I don't think Man City are going to get more than 100 again. So maybe if Man City get to 90 points, let's see if Liverpool can get above 80 and get within that range of them and see if they can chase them down. So I think Jurgen Klopp's one of the best in the world. When when Liverpool got him, I think it was just circumstance that they sacked Brendan Rodgers because they knew Klopp was available. Um, if Klopp wasn't available, I think we'd have stayed with Brendan Rodgers. I think there was a period where Arsenal clearly needed a new coach and Guardiola was available, then Klopp was available and Arsenal never did anything about it. So, two, for me, the two best managers in the world are going to be one and two in the Premier League next year. Just one thing, I'll just say one thing that I don't think I touched on enough in the, when we were talking about the book was... The one thing I think both Guardiola and Klopp like, and I think that's pivotal in in how tactical formations and, and the like have, have dominated football in the last 40, 30, 45, 50 years, is players that are versatile enough to, to change from one position to another. And that, that's the one thing I think that gives coaches tactical versatility, if they have those intelligent footballers. And I think that was definitely key for, for Saki and Capella when they were at Milan. They had players who 
could drift from positions and occupy other positions and then make make those formations stick. I'm sorry that I've just gone off tangent, but I just I thought I had to get that in. Sorry. No, that's it's really a great way to wrap it up, I think, because I think that the book's called Total Football, obviously, and, and the whole idea uh, that Johan Cruyff talks about in his book, that total football is exactly that, that a footballer should be able to play in any position and, and, and manage the ball as as per the position and the ability should really be there to do that so I think that's a great way to round it up thanks very much to both Stevie and Sanj for um for sparing the time to be with us this week um Sanj the book is Total Football it's out now I believe where can people um pick that up do you know what I'd like to say that not only can you get it on Amazon uh, and in Waterstones there's a thousand copies that are apparently available at Sainsbury's across the country I'm slightly disappointed that it's not available at the Sainsbury's in Altering which is where my wife works but that you can definitely get it (laughs) at the Sainsbury's Uh, but yeah uh, uh, Amazon Waterstones and other good bookshops uh, Smith's and and whatnot so but thank you thank you for having me because it's been a pleasure that's great and and I know you're a prolific writer where's best to follow your work do you have a Twitter or is there anywhere else it's better to follow you yeah so I have a Twitter account Uh, it's Sanj Writer but I also have my own blog as well, which is called Don't Call Me Sanjay.com. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be sure to go and check that out straight away. <laughs> uh, and I'm currently working on a, on a fiction book, so but, but thanks for asking. Fantastic. So everybody just uh, keep a look out um, at Sanjrater on Twitter for, for updates on that, all that. Stevie, where can the listeners sort of follow what you're up to? Um, just on Twitter, you'll probably see me tweeting quite a lot about my tactical teacher course and the app which should have been out weeks ago which has been delayed so yeah just on twitter at stevie green that's fantastic you can catch me laura bradburn on at lbrad88 this has been the world football index podcast thanks everybody for listening and we will see you next week